This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Psalm 119.140 says, Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. But do we really love God's word? The American Bible Society recently revealed a shocking statistic along those lines. Only 9% of Americans read their Bibles every day, which is the lowest number in a decade in a country that claims to be dominated by Christians. And these statistics came not too long after pollster George Barner revealed that no generational demographic in our country has more than 9% of its population holding to a biblical worldview, which was defined as holding to views like Jesus Christ is sinless and that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. Now, these are dismal numbers causing us to ask, why don't we show more interest in the Bible, in reading it and studying it and especially cherishing it? It's a really important question, and we're going to talk about it today with Nate Pickowitz. Nate is pastor of Harvest Bible Church in New Hampshire. And today we'll be discussing his latest book, How to Eat Your Bible, A Simple Approach to Learning and Loving the Word of God. Nate, so good to have you here. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Thank you. Well, what do you make of the diminished interest in the Bible in this country and even inside the church? Because we hear about the crisis of biblical illiteracy, even inside our congregations and denominations. What's going on, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's really disheartening. And uh, certainly as a believer, also as a pastor, I think there's a couple things going on I think the first thing is simply our sin nature. I mean, it's it's difficult for us as as people to fight that nature and to do the things we know we're supposed to do as believers. But there's even, I think, more culturally going on where we're living in a, a society that's more antagonistic to the things of God, but even just the fact that we're addicted to distraction. <laughs> we have everything else in the world at our, t- at our fingertips. And so, so to stop and read a book and spend time in prayer and meditation, um, you know, that's just not something that we're encouraged to do. It's not a value. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things working against believers and, and anybody who's living in this culture right now. And I think we just had to fight through it. Well, I agree with you there. And it's interesting because I would say that the lack of biblical literacy and the attention to Bible reading and Bible study shows, doesn't it? If you look oh, across absolutely. the culture, we are paying the price for neglecting the Bible. Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they're, you know, certainly having a, 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 a Christian uh, friendly culture doesn't save anybody. It's only sort of a sympathetic thing. But just in general, I mean, there used to be, even 1,500 years ago, a general sense that we embraced Judeo-Christian values and even an ethic that valued things like the Bible and prayer, but it's just been jettisoned completely. So, you know, we're, we're, it's a post-Christian kind of an atmosphere. Well, it is. How did you come to be concerned about this whole issue of not loving your Bible, not knowing your Bible well enough? Because I think all of us who are really serious about studying God's Word sometimes have that moment where we say, Lord, I- I'm really neglecting your word. How did it happen in your life? Yeah, it was definitely very personal. Uh, A number of years ago, I was a Christian. I professed faith in Christ. I went to church every week. I served. You know, I did all the things that you're supposed to do, but I was just feeling uh, empty, and I was struggling because I just didn't feel like I knew 
God as well. I didn't know what he wanted in my life. I didn't understand certain things. And it was staring me in the face. I mean, I knew I didn't know his Bible, and uh, but I, I felt guilty about it. I felt shame, and I just didn't know how to overcome it. And in the providence of God, he just orchestrated some circumstances and really began to just study the, the Bible uh, on my own and just learn and grow. And uh, he gave me more desire for his word. And so the book kind of takes off on that on that journey, if you will, you know, kind of walking through what I went through and then really trying to turn it around and help other people, other believers who are struggling with the same thing. Well, you're right about that. It's interesting how you came to that conclusion that you didn't know the Bible well enough. And I think there are many people who would say, I I know I don't know the Bible well enough, but I don't quite know how to get out of this. I go to a church where maybe I'm not hearing, you know, expository preaching the way you might in some other congregations. I'm really busy. Sometimes I'll listen to a sermon online, but the pastor in my church doesn't preach that well. These kinds of excuses come up a lot, but what do you say to those Christians about beginning that discipline, really, of getting back to the Word of God and digging into it the way that you should and the way that you would enjoy doing if you would just set your mind to it? Yeah, I think there's even something before all that. I think the first thing you have to do is just pray and talk to the Lord and confess yeah. uh, and just go to Him in repentance and say, Lord, I don't love your word as much as I know I should. And if I'm honest with myself, I don't love you as much as I should. Mm. And then ask for help. Say, Lord, please help me. And if you're consistent in praying for the Lord to give you desire and to help you and show you, He's faithful. I mean, He's a faithful God. He wants us to know His Word. I mean, <laughs> this is like one of the only prayers that God is sure to answer because this is His will. He wants you to know His Word. So I think just being honest before God is the place to start and uh, and then build off of that. Well, right. It's kind of funny that you pointed out Psalm 119 because that's the psalm I've been studying over the last couple of weeks, <laughs> providentially. Yeah. And it's interesting that in that particular psalm, 12 times it uses the phrase, according to your word. And it talks about revive me according to your word, strengthen me according to your word, comfort me according to your word. And when we look at passages like 2 Timothy 3.16, Hebrews 4.12, that are talking about the benefits of the word of God. Nate, speak to that issue a little bit of the benefits of digging into scripture, not only in your own life, what it produces in terms of fruit, but also what it enables you to do as a Christian that you couldn't do if you didn't dig into the word of God. Yeah, I think as so starting off, if you don't know the Lord, uh, you know, he, 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 you hear the gospel through his word. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So that's certainly the first place is that, you know, we come to the knowledge of salvation through hearing the gospel, his word. But I think as a believer, you know, he, he's going to sanctify you. He's going to change you and conform you to the image of the Son. And Jesus specifically says that eternal life is knowing God. But then in the same chapter, chapter 17 of John's Gospel, he says, you know, that we're to be sanctified by the truth. Your word is true. So everything that, we're, that we have as a believer, any place that we're growing, dying to our old self, dying to sinful habits, I mean, all those kinds of things, those are immensely practical. But he changes us through the, the constant ministry of his word. And so, you know, I think people who are struggling that, that feel sort of uh, stuttered and staggered in their walk, 
uh, get to know his word. And like you said in Psalm 119, I mean, David, he knows that he will walk according to God's word. You know, that's the light that illuminates his path. So that's it. Uh, without his word, we will not be sanctified. No, that's right. And, you know, I appreciate that you brought up the book of Amos because there we see the Lord saying he would send a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. And I hear that passage cited quite a bit in our own day. Laments of Christians who are saying, I think we're living through the time of Amos. Would you agree with that, that we really have fallen on hard times in the church, almost to the point where believers are beginning to say, Lord, have you taken your word from us? We have your word on our shelves, but as far as hearing the word of the Lord in the normal course of our lives and maybe even at our churches, that's where we are too. Absolutely. And the thing about it is I'm in New England and a couple of years ago I wrote a book called Reviving New England and talked about the ministry in this region. And this has been like this for, for decades uh, we've kind of outpaced and sort of uh, overpaced the rest of the country in terms of just how far it's gone. But to find churches where you actually you faithfully preach the Word of God, I mean, people travel from all over the place just to find a church that preaches the, the whole counsel of God, mm. and it's a sad thing. And, and even in the face of the fact that the Bible is so readily available to us, I mean, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost insulting, you know, that we have such access to the Scriptures, but yet can't find someone who will faithfully preach and minister the Word of God and then won't sit down and read it ourselves. Right. So it's a very sad thing. Oh, it is. And you're right about that when we talk about the East Coast, and it's becoming more areas than just the East Coast, I would say, across the United States. And it would also seem that what you're talking about is something that is affecting the pulpit. It's not just the people in the pews or the stadium seats, as the case may be, Mm. who are neglecting the Bible, but it would seem also this is a problem behind the pulpit. When we're in an age of entertainment, I suppose the Bible has to take a little bit of a back seat. Well, what's happening, you know, and I hate to make broad generalizations, but we're seeing it more and more these days where you have uh, pastors and leaders who are using the scriptures to proof text whatever they want to say versus having the onus of authority, the basis of authority be invested in the Word of God and simply expounding what God already says. You know, I talk about giving God his pulpits back. We have to give him his pulpit. The way you do that is by giving the word of God to his people. I love it. We're going to take a short break. Nate Pickowitz with us. How to Eat Your Bible is his book. And we'll come back to the discussion after this break. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YESWORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it's great to have you with us and great to be talking with Nate Pickowitz. His book is called How to Eat Your Bible, A Simple Approach to Learning and Loving the Word of God. And this is so close to my heart, Nate. I'm really glad that you wrote this book. You advocate for developing a long-term understanding and love for the Bible. And one of the ways you suggest people begin is by starting with individual book studies. Now, I've always heard, for example, if you have someone who's not a believer, send them first to the Gospel of John. If it is a believer... Would you start there as well, or does it matter where you begin? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't know if I would, you know, be emphatic that a person who is a Christian has to start in a certain place. I know that when I started my reading plan, I didn't know anything, so I was starting, I started in the book of Titus. It was the shortest book I could find, because I didn't know that Third John existed. But, um, you know, I think um, the, the whole point, I think when people read the appendix of the book and they hear seven-year Bible plan, it's a little bit daunting, but the, the whole idea is for us to change our, the way that we think about Bible study. Now, I don't ever want to disparage Bible in a year reading plans, because that's incredibly fruitful, but I think a lot of times, I think we stress ourselves out and put pressure on ourselves to just get through in a year, versus just changing the way we think and saying, you know what, I'm going to have this book for the rest of my life as long as the Lord gives me, and I'm going to spend my life learning this book because I want to know Him. So um, I think if we change, uh, have a paradigm shift in our mind and just slow down, take our time, take the pressure off, and really start to enjoy, make it, make it fun, make it a hobby, something you look forward to doing every day. And so that's why I advocate for that. And I, I've modified other reading plans. The MacArthur reading plan is one that I've modified, but lots of ways to do it, but just, I think, changing the way you think about Scripture. Yeah, now when you talk about a seven-year Bible plan, that seems like an awfully long time for a lot of people <laughs> to say, seven years? I can't even do the one-year Bible plan. Yeah, How am right. I going to do seven? Why seven? What do you fit into those seven years in your Bible yeah. plan? That's a great question. So uh, the way that I've modeled it is uh, three years in the New Testament, and what you're doing is you're, you're taking one month at a time, and you're just reading through, you know, if it's a, a shorter book, you know, 30 times you know, in the month. If it's a longer book like the Gospel of John, maybe break it up into three parts. But the idea is just to be in the same place for a longer period of time and just to, to dig in and saturate yourself in that same place, not plowing through it quickly, but just you know, marinating in that. So about three years in the New Testament, and then I modified even an, an Old Testament plan to be about four years in the Old Testament. And it just seemed like that was a good amount of time to spend to wrap my arms around it. 
but I mean, it's customizable. I mean, people can, they can, if they want to do it in four years or two years or 10 years or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It just matters that we're in the regular practice and devotion of learning to love the Word of God. That's the big idea. That's excellent. But you have recommended in your book, begin in the New Testament. Is that what you would generally recommend each Christian? Yeah, I think I've heard that from other pastors, people who are smarter than me, and I think it's wise uh, because I think for most people, if you start in Genesis, just personal experience, people who've talked to me about it, they usually lose steam. If they don't have a whole Bible picture, they lose steam in Leviticus or in Chronicles or something like that. I think you have to read the, the Bible as 66 individual books and really do the work and find where you are. But, I mean, we're New Covenant, New Testament Christians. I think it's important to start with Jesus and kind of work around that. Yeah. And once you have the New Testament sort of in your mind and in your heart, the Old Testament just comes alive. I mean, oh, it just yeah. becomes so wonderful. So uh, I, I think it works, I think, for people, but there's certainly no harm in, in doing it a different way. Uh, you just want to get the Bible into your heart. Get in there. What about comprehension? and coming up with a kind of methodology for understanding what you're actually reading. There's so many resources. We have Bible commentaries and Bible dictionaries, and it can be overwhelming if you're really looking for resources to help you understand. And the other problem is that you might pick somebody's explanation from a commentary that's out to lunch. So now you're really getting off base. How do, how do you go about helping people understand what they're reading and actually getting the right hermeneutic, the right exegesis, everything that is interpreting the Bible correctly to help you along the way. What, what, how do you do that? Yeah, so that's a, a lot of questions in one spot here. <laughs> Sorry. But I, I think that, you know, the way to go, when I was, when I was looking to write this book, you know, I, I, people were asking me, people in my church were asking me, you know, what do I use for this and that? And, and I was just having a hard time because I didn't want to give them something that was so basic that it would, didn't do anything for them. But then I didn't want to hand them a big, huge, you know, hermeneutics textbook. Yeah. So I just tried to pare down some of the most basic things, asking questions like, what does this passage say? What does it mean? And then how do I apply it? So yeah. very basic hermeneutical questions to kind of get that off and running. I think, I think a lot of times we neglect prayer. I think we neglect asking the Lord for help, asking Him to give you understanding. Um, and then I also think using synthesis or comparing Scripture with Scripture, the Bible is its own best interpreter. So, so many times you're going to find that the meanings of verses uh, are found by the Lord Himself right there in the text. Yes. Um, but I think for more than that, I, I think the best place to go would be to, to go talk to your pastor or a trusted Christian friend and someone who's been a believer a little bit longer to kind of help you navigate some of those things. I mean, lots of churches, lots of denominations, but go to a trusted believer who can help you navigate. And uh, I thank the Lord for Internet, even though um, Internet pastors, celebrity pastors, I don't love celebrity, but the Lord has provided resources of faithful people who can teach the Scriptures. So the Lord's given us a lot of tools. I think we just have to start in the most simple way and kind of work outward. Well, and I'm wondering, when you have gone through the Bible and when you began to want to know the Bible better, one of the things that I used to do initially when I started really digging into Bible study, like in college, is I would just read through a book of the Bible and I would write down every single question that I had. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's a good way to begin? Because then if you actually know where your knowledge is lacking, then you can go search for those answers without distracting from, you know, stopping every verse and running to the commentary, because that can be a little bit laborious after a while. 
Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of observation. And when we talk about what does it say, what does it mean? You know, you're, you're going between reading and making observation and then you're thinking through it. So I think you, you have to ask questions. And I think there's a difference between asking questions because you want to know the answer, but then versus attacking the scripture and being questioning, having a critical spirit. I think right. that to do it with the right heart, a heart of humility, a heart that wants to know the answers and know God better I think God responds to that kind of a study. So, yeah, I, mean, I think that's a great method of asking questions like that. What are some pitfalls to avoid when you're doing Bible study, especially for a newbie who isn't really familiar necessarily with everything that he or she might encounter in the text? I, I know one of the pitfalls can be, you know, interpreting verses, you know, in the way that you think they should be read because you have a preference, you know, by your feelings or your eisegesis is, you know, I'm going to take out of the text what I see rather than what's actually there. What would you recommend people not fall into? Yeah, well, actually, I think you hit it on the head. I think the most common thing people do is that they, they misapply the scriptures. You know, they'll read a, you know, one verse out of context because it speaks to them in the moment, for say, um, but they'll say, oh, this must mean that I'm going to go and buy this car, or <laughs> I'm going to go marry this person, right. or they try to overapply it and place themselves, stick themselves in the Bible where they don't belong. Now, I believe that the Scripture is clear that everything applies to us. All Scripture is profitable for us, but we're we're incorrect if we're going to stick ourselves in a place we don't belong or take a verse completely out of context. And I I sadly think that the the young and uh, new believers are, are being taught this not maybe explicitly, but they're learning it from pastors who do the same thing. Right. So I think you have to learn and study and, and try to read it for you know, what it actually is in context. You know, God is the author of Scripture, and He has a meaning behind what He says. And so the, we call it authorial intent. What, is, what does God as the author mean by this verse? And that's the challenge is, is to interpret it that way. But yes. misapplying Scripture, that's one of the biggest dangers we have in the church. Plus, it makes it really boring. If I'm trying to find myself in every passage, I mean, that's it's so upside down. I, I can't stand when I'm hearing people saying things like, oh, this is what happened to Jonah. What's the, what's the whale in your life? And these kinds yeah, of right. things. And I'm like, come on. That's not even a serious approach. It would seem, as you're advocating, advocating, praying and asking the Lord to guide you and the help of the Holy Spirit working through the word, helping you to understand and illuminate the text to you. One of the things that would seem that would be helpful is to approach the Bible seriously, not just what am I going to get out of it today? Yeah, I mean, so you don't want to roll away the stones of adversity, Janet? You don't want to do that? Yeah, that right. Kind of thing. right. Uh, no, I mean, I think it's great because, you know, you, the whole point is that the Scripture ultimately is about the Lord. Yeah. You know, God is not just the author, but He's the subject. He's the focus of worship. And so, you know, you don't want to just understand yourself and who you are, even though that's important. In the end, I want to know God. I mean, when Moses was asking the Lord, he was asking him, show me your glory. I want to see you. Uh, You're way more interesting, way more magnificent than I am. So the whole point is to go to Scripture and try to understand who is God, what is he saying, what does he mean, what is his good news, and, and then where do I fit into it? How do I respond to God? But I think to know God is the most enjoyable, marvelous adventure you could go on as a Christian. And oh, it so is. That's the point, is to know him and to learn to love him through his word. Do you have a specific recommendation on length of time you should be spending in Bible study every day or a particular time of day that you think would be better for people to do it than other times? Or is it just kind of whenever you can function properly? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Scripture definitely does sort of give preference to the morning times. I think most people are fresh in the morning, but everybody has different circumstances. And what I don't want to do is put a yoke on somebody that, you know, doesn't need to be there. But I think the idea is, you know, if we're supposed to be eating the Bible, how often do you eat? What, three times a day, maybe four times a day? You know, if the metaphor is going to work, the idea is God wants us to be constantly nourishing ourselves on Scripture. So, I mean, I love to be able to, to say a person should read it in the morning and then before they go to bed or whenever you have the time. But, you know, to make it a priority, if I were to give you a million dollars and say, you got to read your Bible every day, you'd find a way. You'd spend hours in the <laughs> Bible because the priority was there. Uh, but to know God is an even higher priority. So I think, you know, the more you grow to love it, then that's all you want to do is just spend time in His Word. And so I think if people really latch on, they're going to have to fight to find time to go to their job. <laughs> they're going to want to read their Bible. So, um, yeah, I mean, any time that works for you, I think, is a good time. Well, that's wonderful. A great book, How to Eat Your Bible by Nate Pickowitz. Nate, so good to have you here. Really appreciate your spending time with us. God bless you. Thank you, Janet. You're listening to Janet Meffer Today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. I find it very gratifying that the head of Delta Airlines is calling out this ridiculous idea by the Biden administration that the best next move to get people back on flights is to require COVID tests of everybody who gets on an airplane. What? We haven't even had significant outbreaks or even less than significant outbreaks of COVID-19 cases because of airplanes. They, They have incredible filters. They've done all kinds of cleaning protocol that have helped stave off any spread of COVID-19. It's perfectly safe to fly. I've done it many times during the pandemic. It's safe to fly. Here's this story via the Daily Wire. Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. I can't get over that. Can I make a little aside comment here? This guy was the mayor, the failed mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Now he's the Department of Transportation Secretary. For one reason, and you know what that reason is. Anyway, he was interviewed on Sunday saying that the Biden administration is in active conversations with the CDC about whether it will require American citizens to have a negative coronavirus test before they're allowed to fly to another U.S. state. Let me just ask a question. Have we ever considered in the history of commercial air flight requiring Americans to get flu shots? or requiring Americans to get mm, MMR shots, or requiring Americans to get any other shot before they can fly. Let's not forget what the recovery rate of COVID-19 is. I know that it's been a pandemic. I know that it has been terrible for some people. I know that it has killed some people, and that is absolutely tragic. I would never take that away from anybody. And I understand that there are vulnerable people in the population Older people, people with underlying health conditions who do have to be careful about where they go and what they do. Totally understood. 
but you're going to shut down the airlines even further if you come up with stupid rules that will prevent people from getting back to life as normal. I am absolutely convinced, and I'm going to get back into this in just a couple of minutes. I am absolutely convinced that the way the Biden administration is handling any number of issues that are of concern to Americans right now is deliberately designed to destroy the country. I'm absolutely convinced about it. Think about the result of trying to do more rules and regulations that would shut down air travel. If you shut down air travel, wouldn't that be wonderful for climate change? And and it would be so wonderful to bring about a green economy. I mean, think of the carbon footprint that occurs when you get on an airplane and all the airplanes that fly any single day of the week. You need to shut all that down because you know what? John Kerry has a private jet anyway, so it doesn't really matter. All these guys have private jets. What do they care if you can't fly? What do they care? And what business is it of the federal government to tell people that they have to have a COVID-19 test before you get on a flight? As cases are going down, how does this even make any sense? I'm telling you, it's deliberate. That's my opinion. It's, it's deliberate. They're the ones who are touting the whole line, build back better. Justin Trudeau has taken it on and the World Economic Forum has taken it on with their Great Reset. We, we know exactly what these globalists are up to. How do you build back better unless you destroy first what you already have? So this is on my mind. As I said, I'm going to get into this a little bit later on. Let's go, though, to the Tampa mayor. Another example of somebody who is, well, how shall we say it? A tyrant. You know, we had the Super Bowl just a few days ago and the Tampa mayor, Jane Castor, said during a press conference on Monday that now the police department is seeking to identify people who were all excited about the Super Bowl, but were excited without a mask. Oh, she passed that mask order and and people just did not comply with that. Tom Brady, make sure you throw him in the clank because he was going around without a mask. Clearly a dangerous criminal. Listen to what she said. This is cut one. Everyone knows that simply wearing a mask dramatically reduces the spread of COVID-19. And I'm proud to say that the majority of individuals that I saw uh, out and about enjoying the festivities associated with the Super Bowl were complying. You know, we, we had tens of thousands of people all over the city, downtown, out by the stadium, Ybor City, uh, down here in Channel Side, and very, very few incidents. So I'm proud of our community, but uh, those few bad actors uh, will be identified and the Tampa Police Department will handle it. The mass police, they're coming to get you. They're coming to get you because it's been so terrible in the state of Florida. New York has done a great job. California has done a great job. No cases there, no overflowing hospitals there, no nursing home deaths, no tyrants, nothing. No, New York and California have been fantastic. It's Florida where things have been out of control. No, actually, it's completely backwards. This is just, these people just lie. Masks dramatically reduce COVID-19. That's factually untrue. It depends on the kind of mask you're wearing. It depends on whether or not you actually are exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19. If you have an N95 mask, we've been through this ad nauseum. I'm not going to go into all of it. It's just not true. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was on Fox and Friends talking a little bit on what it has meant to Floridians that he has opened up the state the way he has. Listen to cut two. Well, you look around the country and they still are debating whether schools should be open. We've had schools open the whole year. 
They talk about whether businesses should be open. Every business in Florida has a right to operate. They talk about all these people unemployed. In Florida, every single person has a right to earn a living. Uh, and our unemployment rate is lower than the national average, even though we're so tourism dependent, that market hasn't recovered at all. Uh, our COVID though, we have uh, less COVID mortality per capita than the national average. 25 states are higher. So the lockdowns don't work on their own, but they cause catastrophic damage to society. So what we've been able to do as other states have tried to lock people down, we've tried to lift people up. And I'll tell you, every time I go out, someone will come up to me and say, my kid wasn't doing well, thank you for getting him back in school. Or my business would have failed, thank you for saving us. Or I would have lost my job. Those effects are gonna make this state so strong going forward. And I think had we tried a different course that has not worked in other places, I think it takes years and years to be able to recover from the damage. I'm so glad that he said that because it is true. We were able to go to Florida for a few days over the holidays. It was fantastic. We got to eat outside. Nobody had a mask. People were excited. People were happy. None of us got sick. Maybe we should consider going back to normal life. And if you feel vulnerable and you have not gotten your COVID shot and you want to get your COVID shot, go ahead and do that. People can self-isolate as much as they want. You don't have to shut down the rest of the country. The COVID cases are falling. The places where the mask mandates have been most draconian have had the highest rises in cases. Just look at California. Now, the national media has criticized DeSantis, as I mentioned, but celebrated Cuomo. People like Cuomo, who sent all of those vulnerable elderly people uh, back into the nursing homes and gave them COVID-19 and thousands of people died because of that. But Cuomo's a hero. This is what DeSantis said. Cut three. They have a partisan agenda. And I think it was an election year. They did not want the president to carry Florida. I think the fact that the president endorsed me when I ran for governor, you know, means that they want to do that. So they had a narrative and their narrative is whatever that helps them advance their political. It doesn't matter about the facts. They don't care about the facts. In fact, they will ignore facts that are inconvenient for their narrative and even concoct conspiracy theories as to why the facts aren't doing it. So I think they've done a horrible job uh, with what they've done. But here's the thing. People aren't buying it because people vote with their feet and they are flooding into the state. We have investment coming in. We have people buying homes like never before. We have the fact just the fact that we have schools open. People are leaving in every corner of the state just because we have schools. We had sports. We've had sports going on the whole time. I have parents who have moved their kids to Florida because they didn't want to miss football season, which they would have in some of these lockdown states. And so I think that there's the narratives that, that some of the corporate elite media try to sell. People don't buy it. And this is a perfect example, because if people bought their narratives, you'd have people leaving here to right. go to these states that are supposedly doing so well. Now, you've talked about voting with their feet. By the way, are you going to try to translate those into votes for presidency? <laughs> are you going to run for president in 2024? Well, we got a great uh, governor's election in 2022, which will be very important for our state. And quite frankly, I think, uh, you know, it gives us the ability to keep the momentum going. So that's what we're focused on. Focused on governorship. Yep. But is that a no to running for president? <laughs> that's a uh, we have 2022 okay. to worry about. OK, Ron DeSantis. I think there are an awful lot of people who would like to recruit him to run the next time around. We'll see what happens. There's more to come on Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. We'll be back.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a health care program, sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. Expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I have a theory and an opinion that the Biden administration, I I wouldn't say President Biden per se, because frankly, I'm still of the mind that he doesn't quite know what's going on. I'm not trying to be mean, by the way, in saying that. I, I just honestly believe it. I don't think he fully understands what's going on. I think he's past the point where he is cognitively able to do the full job of the president. And I don't think it matters to the left because I think we have people behind him who are pulling the strings and making the decisions. I'm not saying he's not in on anything, but I just don't think this guy has his hand on the wheel and he's the one steering the ship here. I think there are people behind the scenes, maybe his former running mate who used to be on the top of the ticket back in 2008. Maybe he has something to do with it. Maybe Susan Rice has something to do with it. Maybe Bill Gates, maybe these elites, who knows who's really pulling the strings. But at any rate, the Biden administration, I firmly believe, knows exactly what it's doing when it is trying to destroy the United States. They know exactly what they're doing. The Keystone Pipeline, get rid of thousands of jobs. Peter Ducey from Fox News did a great job talking to the press secretary, Jen Psaki. So all of these people who the Biden administration has said now have lost their jobs, but they're going to get jobs in the green industry. When is that going to happen? And she got all snarky with them. Of course she did. They don't have any plans for anybody to get better jobs or higher paying jobs. They're trying to destroy jobs. Here's another example of destroying jobs. Via the blaze, government analysis of the proposal from Democrats to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour says that it would cost the economy 1.4 million jobs if implemented. Fantastic. The startling analysis was just released by the Congressional Budget Office. The jobs would be lost cumulatively over four years because the proposal would gradually raise the minimum wage from 725 to more than twice that amount by 2025. 
The report said 17 million workers whose wages would otherwise be below $15 per hour would be directly affected, and many of the 10 million workers whose wages would otherwise be slightly above that wage rate would also be affected. The CBO found that in addition to those who would lose employment, another 900,000 people would be brought up above the poverty line. Okay, well, fantastic. But if you're losing 1.4 million jobs, but you're helping 900,000 people, do the math on that. How is this overall going to be a great proposal? It's not. It's going to drive more restaurants out of business. There is a reason that they pay low wages at these places to keep your prices low. They keep the prices low. You want to pay 10 bucks for a little teeny tiny hamburger at McDonald's? Uh, I don't know if you'll be paying 10 bucks exactly, but if you start implementing a $15 minimum wage, you're either going to get $10 little hamburgers or you're going to get one person running the entire restaurant and you're going to be sitting in that drive through for about 30 minutes. And then you're going to grasp, okay, I can't get through. I need my coffee. I need my little hamburger that's $10. Why is it $10? And why is this line so long? Well, welcome to the left, folks. You voted for it. Well, maybe you didn't vote for it, but... A couple people voted for it and a bunch of people who might have marked up ballots voted for it. Uh, But we won't go there right now. Let's talk a little bit more about the left because I have a couple of clips I want to play for you. There was an interview done over on Cuomo Primetime on CNN this week. Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, basically threatened Republicans on live TV. (laughs) You can't make this up. They're basically making threats against the Republican Party. It's not like it's new. It's not like it's new. But this is still kind of jarring to listen to this, uh, discussing the impeachment trial, which is a complete waste of time. He misspeaks, actually, at the beginning of this clip. But listen to Tom Friedman. This is cut four. I think we know this is uh, the president's not going to be acquitted. Um, There is nothing that um, the majority of Republican senators, there's nothing the president could do that they will convict him because they all want to get reelected and preserve their free parking at National Airport and their 174 grand salaries. And they will do whatever the base says. And to me, you know, the most important thing, Chris, of the Trump rally is where Donald Trump Jr. comes out and says, wait a minute, this is not their Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. And I would say to all those senators who are going to try to hide behind the procedural question, you are all living on borrowed time because as soon as this trial is over, Chris, Trump is going to have a real coming out party. He's being, you know, a nice little boy in the corner right now, not saying anything because he doesn't want to mess up the trial, his case any more than it is. But when this is over, what Donald Trump Jr. said at that rally This is Donald Trump's party, not their party. That's really going to come out. And then you're going to see every day he's going to say something. There's going to be another Marjorie, you know, uh, Taylor Green, whatever her name is, out there saying crazy stuff. And every day those Republican senators are going to be asked, do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? They're just living on borrowed time. What is he talking about? By the way, when Donald Trump Jr. makes a remark like this is Donald Trump's Republican Party, what he's trying to express, and I know they probably don't understand conservative speak in the New York Times newsroom because they don't know any. What he's trying to say, Mr. Friedman, is that the people who voted Republican and voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and voted for him again in 2020 with many more people voting for him in 2020 They like what Donald Trump did. 
They may not have liked every single thing he said and his personality and all the rest. They loved his policies. They loved that he made people feel patriotic and proud of the United States again. They loved that he was pro-life. They loved that he was pro-Israel. They loved that he undid the leftist agenda of Barack Obama and did it with bravery and did it without apology. That is almost like a unicorn sighting, at least in my lifetime, because I'm so used to having all these Republicans act like, oh, I'm so strong. I'm a great conservative. I'm going to fight for you. And then they get up on Capitol Hill and they're like, oh, Chuck Schumer wants me to be bipartisan. I think I'll go along with what Chuck Schumer says. And you're back home going, what just happened here? I gave you money. I gave you you know, my hard earned money to try to help you in your campaign because you said you were going to fight for me. And you went to Washington and you turned into one of them. We have so many people we could point to and say that about. And Trump wasn't like that. That's what Donald Trump Jr. means. And frankly, those people who back the president and back the reality that, in fact, it was not an insurrection and Donald Trump did not incite an insurrection. They're just seeing reality as it is. They're not living on borrowed time if they hold to the principles of the Republican Party that the people basically want them to hold to and want to keep their feet to the fire. That's what's going on here. So wake up, Friedman. And then he loved on China. Listen to this one. Cut five. But you know what I've been thinking about, Chris, as I was listening to your show, uh, the lead in here, I was thinking, like, what are they doing in China today? You know, Chris, do you know that it takes four hours and 18 minutes to take the bullet train from Beijing to Shanghai? And it takes 21 hours to take the train from New York to Chicago. And they're both about the same distance. I can't, I'll tell you something they weren't thinking about in China this week. They weren't thinking about some knucklehead. They weren't spending the week thinking about a knucklehead who claimed 9-11 didn't happen. They weren't thinking about some guy who's a QAnon shaman. I don't know. They were probably thinking about some bad stuff with the Uyghurs and all of that. Oh, for sure. But I guarantee you, they weren't wasting their time on this nonsense. And how do we do this week after week, month after month, and think we are a serious country? We are so deeply unserious as a country right now. And we need to put this behind us, okay, and get focused on the future. Because right now, we are going to be falling farther and farther behind. And, and that's what's really on my mind. And that's why I am praying for Joe Biden, because I think he's a serious guy. He's trying to do the right thing. And I think he is cursed by a Republican Party that is chasing a madman who actually encourage people to sack our capital. You have to stop and repeat that. They sacked our capital on the basis of a big lie. And now a Republican majority is going to sit on their hands and be just fine with that. Shame on them. Shame, shame, shame on them. I can add nothing. Oh, gross. That's just gross. First of all, sacking. Do you know what sacking means? Like the sacking of Rome? It means to rob of goods or valuables after, you know, coming at people lawlessly. I mean, they took a podium. I think there may have been some things that those people took when they broke into the Capitol and they should not have done it, but it was hardly a sack. I mean, it. but China... Listen to this New York Times reporter praising China. They have bullet trains. They have bullet trains in China. They're not worried about the QAnon shaman. Yeah, they're just worried about, oh, let's see, forced abortions and communism and no freedom and no private companies. And, oh, yes, concentration camps. Bad thoughts about the Uyghurs. You mean those human beings who are being sent to concentration camps? That's just an aside because they have a bullet train, don't you know? They have a bullet train. I just love Joe Biden. He's really with it. 
Speaking of China, you might want to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop, New York Times. That might be something you could spend some time on that would have some actual value for the country. But you won't do it. They are just out to lunch. But we're out of time. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. We will see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today.